rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome, friends. It's another episode of Rumors of Grace, and I believe we're on episode number 65 now. And to commemorate this episode, I've got a very special friend with me today, and he's zooming in here from Nashville as well. His name is Mr. Stephen James. Stephen James is a counselor. He's the founder and executive director of Sage Hill Counseling in Nashville. He also works with professionals, C-suite executives, and entrepreneurs to help them improve not only their leadership, but their family lives as well. He's also the best-selling author of six books, including Parenting with Heart with Chip Dodd. He and his wife, Heather, live in Nashville, Tennessee, and they have four children. And today we're going to talk uh, somewhat about his latest book with Chip Dodd, and it's called Hope in the Age of Addiction. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you're here. You weird. We're in, we're in the same town, but we're not with each other. That's so I know. Cool. No, I know. Normally, <laughs> I'd invite you over. I, I do have a little studio, but I figured, hey, this is fast. It's safe, and and yeah. it, it, people are getting used to this. Who, who knows where I've been? Right, I'm being dirty and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you haven't been cleared, and I, and I just ran out of my, <laughs> my home tests. So, yeah, I was in Utah last week, so that's that. I, you might want to stay away from me because they've yeah. not heard of COVID. They don't believe in COVID in Utah. So. Uh, what a crazy time, man! What <laughs> yeah. a crazy time! But they do time. open carry weapons, which yeah. is so strange. Yeah, we'll so. shoot that virus if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Stephen, um, you know, our paths have crossed briefly over the years, and, and we, have, we have several mutual friends, so um, we'll talk about that a little bit as time goes on, but... We should be better friends than we are. Like I know. all the people we know, yeah. Exactly. It's a, Nashville, it really is a small town. It really is. So, uh, Stephen, um, first of all, I, I always like to start the podcast talking about, you know, who my guest is and... What their background, and just tell us a little bit about where you're born, how you brought up, and maybe hundred foot view of how you landed on where you are now with with Sage Hill. Wow. Okay. Um, I was born in Nashville, uh, so I'm a, a boy. I'm a unicorn. Uh, you know, went to college here at Belmont. Uh, was a uh, not in the music business ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> you are a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Um, uh, you know, was an English major. Thought I wanted to go to law school um, after after college. Instead, I got married the day after I graduated college. I thought that was a, a, uh, a, a like the right decision to make at that time of my life, which was good. Uh, uh, my, my biggest and most proudest accomplishment is been married to Heather for 25 years. Like that is, um, I'm very grateful and aware that. Uh, we're lucky and that's not a real common story for a lot of people. Uh, we have a wonderful marriage. So that, that's a big piece of my, you know, my own background was growing up in a family that was uh, divided by divorce and addiction and trauma. And uh, so I think I was pretty committed to build a family more than I was building a career. Right. Mm. Um, 
professionally, I thought I wanted to be a soccer coach. So I was an assistant soccer coach at Belmont. I coached a bunch of youth teams. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I did that for about 10 years. And then I held down a day job uh, um, that was like a professional job um, at a publishing company doing working in acquisitions and those kind of things at a publishing company. And uh, about seven, six or seven years into our marriage, my false self was kind of uh, running out of energy. And uh, I was um, starting to to kind of fall apart, basically. I was, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I was in my late 20s, um, maybe 30 at that point. And I just started falling apart. And uh, I thought it was a vocational issue is what I thought it was. I thought I, like it just wasn't working hard enough doing the right thing, doing enough good is what I thought. So I thought, well, what do all, you know, emotionally bankrupt people do, they need to go to seminary. So, so I started this, this quest to find a seminary that would take me. You were a glutton Um, for punishment, I guess. I was a glutton for punishment. (laughs) And I didn't really want to go into like any kind of vocational ministry. I didn't feel called to that, but I felt called to love people and know people and know their story and care about them in thoughtful ways. And, And I, and because of my background and kind of what I was thinking about at those times in my life, this was the very beginning of kind of the um, emergent church movement and postmodernism. And so I, I was getting to hang out with some of the people kind of in the beginning of that. And uh, so I was um, thinking about like more progressive styles of theology and what, back then, which meant like mainline. Uh, so I was trying to just kind of figure out where I was going, what I was doing. And I found this seminary out in Seattle called. So this is like early, early 2000s. This is, yeah, this is 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found this seminary out in Seattle um, called uh, Marshall Graduate School. It's now called the Seattle School for Theology and Psychology. Uh, Dan Allender was the president at that point. And um, I flew out to Seattle with a buddy to check it out. And uh, it, it was in a business park. Like it wasn't much of a school at that point. It was you know, a couple of hundred students made up the whole school and it was in a business park. But I, their tagline was uh, tech, soul, and culture. So mm. really studying and learning about the intersection of, of story, of humanity, and how those shape culture and play themselves out in culture. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with that idea. Uh, uh, and so I got accepted to the MDiv program. After one semester, everybody there has to take counseling classes. And I uh, very narcissistically describe it this way. It was like I was a 30-year-old Babe Ruth and somebody handed me a baseball bat. Like it was it's like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do with this. Like I knew and it was, mm. I felt really gifted and um, uh, it made sense to me, like in ways that nothing ever vocationally had made sense. And so mm. uh, it's, so I've kind of poured myself into um, getting a counseling degree and then uh, ended up working for the school in administration, doing marketing and development, uh, ran the development office for a little bit. And, and then I graduated and uh, the school offered me a job and we decided to move back to Nashville. (laughs) So, so we left Seattle and I opened a small private practice in Nashville uh, in 2003 and um, did that by myself for a while. just trying to figure out what it means to meet people in a therapeutic context and uh, do good psychotherapy and 
nobody does good psychotherapy when they get out of graduate school. They're really bad at it. And uh, I was, I was working with very blunt tools at that point in my profession and probably hurt more people than I helped early in the early days, but I cared a lot and uh, kept trying and growing. And then we had twins. We went from two kids to four kids and I kind of freaked out and I thought I needed a job. Right. And um, so that took me into a short stint at a Bible church. And I grew up, uh, I grew up in a, in a pretty moderate, open spiritual heritage. And so I didn't know about evangelicalism. I didn't know about fundamentalism. So when I got to, got a job at this church, um, it was a bad fit from day one and it stayed a bad fit for about three years, but I needed, I thought I needed insurance and I thought I needed vacation days and I thought I needed a regular paycheck. Um, uh, needless to say, that was a, it was probably, I think, to their credit and my credit, we didn't end on bad terms. Like they did a great job. And, um, but I, uh, didn't last and I went back into private practice, but I, uh, went and put my office at a friend's house or a friend's office, Chip Dodd, who I wrote this new book with. And he let me put my office inside of his treatment center, my private practice office. And I, the power of working in community really, I saw that. And so I started getting this idea of, how do I create a community of wholehearted, like therapeutic people that are stronger together, that are actually growing together, that can serve the world uh, from a place of like relationship and, and communal strength as opposed to independence. Right. And so the idea of Sage counseling kind of birthed and we started it in 2014. Um, and, you know, now we've grown a little bit and got a lot of therapists, a lot more therapists than we had. And, uh, it's so it's really the, the idea came out of this belief that we're not made to do this work alone. And, mm. you know, most therapists go into the world of therapy thinking they're going to help people and find it's the most lonely profession you could ever run into because you're at, if you're really good, you meet with five or six people a day and you only talk about them, you know, if you're good. Right. Yeah. And so, I, so we, you know, the idea is to build a community that can serve the community. Like that's our kind of our background idea. So that's what we're doing now at say chill and, uh, and then uh, along with that, my growth has been as a person has been working with more and more leaders. It's kind of always been kind of my stance with people. And uh, so the last three or four years, I've started another company called the Leadership Lab, where, where we build cohorts of executives, entrepreneurs and professionals, five or six people at a time that um, it's a intersection of group therapy and uh, business coaching and, uh, hanging out together. So it's, it's a, it's a great environment. Um, but again, it's still based on the idea that, that we're stronger together than we are apart. You mm. know? So that's great. So that's kind of, that's my heart. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for that. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about before we jump into the book and some of the themes there, I, I think it's important to uh, lay a groundwork of your own personal growth and evolution. One of the things we talk about here on the podcast quite a bit with my guests uh, and the whole purpose of what it came out of is, you know, this rumors of grace idea that um, rumors of of growth and and transparency and evolution coming out of an unexpected places yeah. where 
And those unexpected places are those places where many times the mainstream or traditional church or whatever might question uh, whether it's true or not. Um, so I'm curious about your own personal evolution. Uh, what were, you know, what does that look like for you um, as someone who has, you know, gone to seminary, who counsels and writes books in the context of a faith perspective? Um, you know, do, would you say you're the same person you were when you entered seminary? Are you? Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm probably not. And that's probably what I just did right there was my, probably my own, most earnest prayer I've uttered in weeks. <laughs> oh, God, I hope I'm not the same. I'm probably less different than I think I am, though, actually. Mm. Like, you know, I think I've changed quite a bit. Uh, the longer and it's been 20 years now, I've been working with people in a intimate context of story. And I'm realizing we don't change that much. We just hold our story differently you know, mm. more, more, more generously, more graciously. Right. Love so, that. uh, my first kind of like cornerstone experience of kind of being aware that <clears throat> there's something bigger than me, uh, and I'm part of this bigger thing, um, was, uh, my gr- growing up, my grandmother would let me sit with her in the choir loft of my church growing up. Right. Mm. So there's a pole and she sang alto back when churches had choirs with robes and those kind of things. And she would let me sit beside her behind the big column so no one in the audience or auditorium could see me, right? And I would sit next to her. And she was a terrible singer. Like, she was awful. But, man, she sang with a full heart, right? And just to sit next to her on those Sunday mornings really stirred something in me that uh, felt real and true. Um, And... uh, you know, and kind of opened up something up in me that that I wanted to be curious about what this thing is. And I think I've been chasing that thing mm. since then. Like I've been looking for that rumor. I love the idea of rumors. Like there are rumors and scents and trail markings and like broken twigs on the path. It's like I'm following that thing that I felt, you know, as a boy in China. Mm. And I have found it and I have lost it and I have found it and I've lost it over and mm. over and over again, you know. Yeah. Um, That's a great metaphor. That's a great metaphor for many of us have, have felt like uh, we were certain we found it and then we lost it altogether. And we're not sure um, if we, if we found it, if we want to find it and uh, maybe are scared of finding it. Uh, Does that resonate with you at all? Um. Not as much because my own trauma and wounding has taught me not to put much faith in anything. Right? <laughs> so, so, so uh, I have always had a very healthy suspicion of authority, mm. uh, and that goes back to my family growing up and stuff my parents were experiencing when I was a boy that they were experiencing as adults. And I, so, I think you know, the idea. I was leading a men's group this morning, and we were talking about this idea that, that there's some system or, um, or theology or, or political party or government that's going to deliver me from the human condition. Right. Mm. And I think a lot of us, uh, you know, who are talking about that experience, like I thought I found it and it let me down, kind of ran into, well, I thought if I just believed this way or did this thing or, you know, voted this way or whatever I did, then it was somehow going to be a warranty for me on against life, 
that life wouldn't happen, you know? And one of the, the tenets of life that I think is true is that life is tragic and God is faithful. And those two things go together in a really weird, paradoxical, mysterious way. But there's no, there's no thing that's going to deliver us from life. Um, Samuel Beckett, in one of his plays, said, you're on earth and there's no cure for that. You know, and um, so I do think people who I was let down so early and disillusioned so early that my work has been actually trying to trust systems and have faith in them and believe that they are good. And it's not just up to me. Right. And so, so I feel like for me, building communities of people and being part of communities of, of people is like really healing and redemptive. Um, But I do understand that I think most people invest in some system, right. And for people who are spiritually sensitive or grew up in those cultures, like they are really bought into the, if I believe this way or if I practice these practices, these rituals, then my life will be okay. And then mm-hmm. when life throws us questions we don't have answers to or pain that's not causal, like it's no one's fault. And I don't know who freaking Adam and Eve are, so quit blaming them. Like, you know, that's like a scapegoat story. Right. Totally missed, totally mistold, by the way. That's not how the story goes. But, but then I kind of, I, I, throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think I see a lot of people do that and which is okay. Like you're, you're hurting, you're in pain, you know? Um, and so uh, I've just been so disappointed that I've, de- I've deconstructed my life so many times that it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm tired of doing that. I have a knack for destroying things. I need to work on building things. Yeah, for it's, sure. That's my personal stance, you know? And, yeah. But I understand the need to dismantle, uh, things that aren't working or don't work for me anymore. Um, Mm. But when I push against something, you know, as a reaction, that thing I'm pushing against still defines me. That's right. Right. It's Mm -hmm. oppositional energy. And so I think those first stages of kind of waking up to this system, whether it be a family or a church or political party or whatever that I put my faith into or capitalism or socialism like right now, there's this big push in our country. Like capitalism's bad. Let's turn to socialism. Socialism pretty much sucks too. Like <laughs> there's not a healthy version of a true socialistic culture. Uh, you know, we but we want to do we want something to do our work for us. But when I push against that thing, um, it in, still defines me. It's still the center of my life until I turn from it. You know, the old-fashioned words repent. When I return back to how how I'm really made then I can start learning and growing how I'm made to live. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is much harder than following someone else's rule book. So I think those early church experiences, I think growing up in a, in a pretty emotionally dysfunctional home, uh, I think getting married early, I think having kids shaped me more than anything. Um, I think we've had a couple of, real scary physical challenges with one of our child, one of our children that, that mm. has shaped my belief about life. You know, I'm a mystic at heart, man. Like I, yeah. the, the truth is out there. It's like the uh, X-Files, remember the X-Files? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, right. The truth is out there. Like, let's go find it. You know, yeah, and they never good. found it. They never found it. Right. That's right. But I think that's the whole point, it. right? That's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, this idea of, of certainty and, um, you know, a static orthodoxy, you know, before the, before we push record, you, 
you talked about uh, a generous orthodoxy, and I, I love that. Um, you know, I think there's definitely um, a freedom in letting go of much of that certainty in our lives and understanding that that if there is an infinite and if there is a some would call God, the universe that, that is perfect love and is full of kindness that um, there is a very, very, very large um, universe for us to explore and an orthodoxy. uh, If you want to call it that it can be extremely generous. And I think maybe that's what the beauty and freedom of life is all about. Uh, Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about, for me, trusting that that is, that is the pathway to peace. Yes. Right. Um, uh, that's inclusive and, you know, welcomes, and, you know, so. And, yeah. and why, why, I would love to get your perspective as a therapist and a counselor. Um, why is, first of all, that's so scary for many of us. And number two, why would we rather, um, insulate ourselves with a form of certainty and tribalism that doesn't allow us to explore that generous love and orthodoxy. Yeah. Uh, Bob, I think it goes to the core idea that we're made. Our deepest need is to belong in matter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if I have a set of rules, you know, that, that create uh, a way for me to belong. I will choose those rules. And it, then if it answers for any kind of my anxiety or, or fear or terror or any shame or humiliation, if it offers some solution for that, then I mean, I'm, I'm all in, uh, you know, gangs like inner city gangs are some of the t- most tight knit communities that you'll find. Right. And the price to get in many of the gangs, it means you have is, is killing somebody. You have to go against you know, that wiring in you. Uh, to not do that because almost every human being has a big check in their spirit against killing another person, right? There's psychopaths or really broken people who don't have that problem, but you go against your own design in order to be part of the group, right? Uh, You don't have a voice in order to belong. You lose your identity. You lose yourself to become part of this bigger group, right? That, that, That is so part of of our deep, deep, deep makeup is to belong in matter. So I think that's part of it, right? That's part of why we want certainty or why we don't ask good questions. I think is when we lose our curiosity and replace it for certainty, you know? Um, And even atheism, which is some of the most fundamentalist people I know are atheists. Like they're so closed off to any version of story that doesn't jive with their, their version of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, I think it's just fear. So the other part, so I want to belong in matter and I don't want to feel afraid, you know, mm. and, uh, but you're going to feel afraid and, um, because that's part of being a human is being afraid. And so what do you do with your fear becomes a, I think a better question, a more responsible question. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, speaking of fear and, and, and some of those things, that's a good segue, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about some of the subjects of your book, your latest yeah. one, Open the Age of Addiction. And um, I guess I'd just start with the right out of the gate, the obvious, you know, what is addiction? Because 
I, again, it's one of those words that is so thrown around, so overused. Um, you know, you've got all kinds of quote addictions, um, to where I think it's kind of, you know, losing some of its power because you can be addicted to chocolate. You can be addicted to sex. You can be addicted to, to, Oh, reading too much. You know, I, I don't know. Some of those seem like they're addictions. Some like some some of them seems like they're not. So what is addiction? Yeah, it's I'm gonna give you the real fancy definition and then we'll talk, we'll unpack it, right? Okay. It's a pathological it's a pathological relationship with the mood altering substance or behavior that in spite of negative consequences and attempts to stop, I keep doing. So that's the mm. I'll break that down. It's pathological in that it's harming me and it's gonna kill me. Okay. Right. With something that changes my mood. Right. So either something I ingest or something I do to change my mood that even when I recognize it's harming me and try to stop, I keep doing it. It's a compulsion. Right. So that's the that's the fancy definition for it. And but I agree with you. It and a lot of what you said is human beings can be addicted to anything. Like we actually, the way our brains are made, anything that moves us from a state of humiliation or terror and or terror to a sense of belonging and feeling secure, our brain, not our mind, right? But our, the organ of our brain says yes to that. And it forms a neuropathway that has a really strong sheathing around that neuropathway that is, can never, almost never be destroyed, Right. So, so it's an unconscious, non-thinking process that uh, to do something that makes me feel better, right? And uh, you know, the classic ones: alcohol, illegal drugs, uh, uh, opioids are massive right now. So much bigger than COVID right now is are opioids. But we've gotten off of opioids, and we have a new a new something to worry about, which is probably America's unique fear, unique addiction is fear. We're addicted to fear more than anything. It's a mood altering relationship with the, with the five minute news cycle. Yes. That's always pointing out problems always. Right. And we have email and text messages and, and phones were desi- designed by social, social psychologists to make you want to keep looking at them. Uh, you can't put them down. Even when you do put them down, you'll have phantom buzzings in your pocket. That's, that's addiction right now. How, I don't know if anyone's ever died from their phone, except people have died texting and driving, you know, and, and because they can't not look at their phone. There's a, mm-hmm. an unconscious process that kicks in when they're driving a car and they go to look at their text. And we all know that it actually is more dangerous than driving drunk because uh, at least yeah. when you're driving drunk, you're kind of paying attention. Right. Um, and so addictions, we can turn anything into addiction exercise. I do know people who have exercised to the point of self-harm, uh, food addiction, both withholding and uh, engorging ourselves with food. It's an addictive neurochemical process. And, and I think the reason we titled the book, The Age of Addiction, is that there is something going on. There has been building in our culture, uh, Western culture specifically, for quite a time that, that has made this a very unique season in human history um, where we can uh, – actually take pills and do things where we never have to feel unhappy or afraid or ashamed or lonely. Like we could just mood alter ourselves legally forever and ever and ever and never have to have a bad day. Mm. Um, except the bad days 
still catch up with us, right? And yeah, so. with that with that definition, uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, um, addictions sometimes do they have to? Does it have to fit that that definition? So, for example, you're probably drinking coffee. I'm addicted to coffee, but I have no problem with it. And actually, I'm actually drinking Topa Chico. Okay. Because I'm on a coffee detox right now. Oh, I I've see. I've got a horrific headache because I'm on day two <laughs> of caffeine withdrawal. So I am three ibuprofen and three bottles of water into the morning, and I'm not feeling good. Like I feel terrible, right? And it's just caffeine withdrawal. Yeah. You know? Well, well, that that's my point. Is I have no problem drinking coffee every morning. I don't feel like it harms me long term, and I function better with it. So. Can we have addictions or would they even be uh, defined as addiction if it's doesn't harm us, doesn't really harm us long term and it makes us function better, even though our bodies, um, like you said, if I go off, I will get a headache. So there is a physiological addiction to it. However, I personally have no problem with it. What, what, yeah, what, how do you great. categorize that? Good for you. I would say that it's not an addiction. I mean, you're physical. So we talk about, you know, addiction is troubling for the human because of mm. it, it interacts on four different levels. So there's a physiological component, mm-hmm. right? There's a psychological piece. There's an emotional piece and there's a spiritual piece. And those, the, the most difficult addictions are the one that actually touches, touch all four of those at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That have, a physical dependency issue that they create, where you actually, you can't go off of it, right? Um, they, they have a psychological way, right, that, of making meaning and making sense of my life with this, answering life's questions with this behavior or substance. Uh, they have an emotional dependency where I, I don't even know how to feel or do, do feelings or tolerate my feelings without this thing in my life. Um, you know, and they have a spiritual component. They become the center of my universe. They become yeah. my God, right? Yeah. So when something is is all four of those things, but those are the hardest addictions to deal with. Uh, those are the classic ones that we talk about recovery from. But here's the here's the ironic thing: is people don't get addicted to bad things, right? Mm-hmm. We want to even paint like good or bad, right, wrong. Right. People get addicted to good things, like really food, sex, alcohol, these are fun things are great. They're wonderful. They can be wonderful. And they can also be destructive. Uh, there's a guy that died in Korea last year from video games. Like he, he played video games and dehydrated himself so much because he wouldn't get up to, to get water. He died. Right. Mm. That's insane. Like yeah. that's insanity, but that's an addiction. Yeah. Right. That that's an addiction. So, you know, the root of addiction typically is for almost everybody um, is the the invulnerability to emotion. I don't want to feel what it's like to be human, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to feel what it's like to be particularly me Uh, because when I feel this way now, it's uncomfortable and I just want it to stop. Yeah, that's Um, good. So, yeah, yeah. One of the titles of... And I guess that's another good segue to one of the titles uh, in your book is How Normal Becomes Addiction. Yeah. And talk about that a little bit. 
because I think that's a fascinating idea that, um, you know, the age of addiction, there's so many things that we do uh, and so many things that individuals do that I do that are a normal part of life in the 21st century. Um, and depending on where you live in your socioeconomic status, uh, something could be very normal, but, but you're, but what you, you say in your book is that, that it can easily become an addiction. Yeah. Well, nobody wakes up and says, you know, I think five years from now, I'm going to end up divorced with my children, not talking to me and in jail because I just refuse to stop drinking. Mm. Like no one makes that decision. I'm going to drink myself to death, right? Mm -hmm. Destroy my life. Or I'm going to use this this pain medicine that I got for my back. I'm going to start driving around town so I can buy, you know, one off of those pills. And, you know, or uh, this anti-anxiety medicine my doctor gave me that he kind of warned me about or she kind of warned me about. Now I'm taking four or five a day, right? No one. And and I'm thinking about that more than I'm thinking about the actual people I want to be with. Like that's not a decision people make. Right. And so it's real easy to paint the idea of addiction into like a moral category. But the very first thing is it's a normal process mm. that I said it a little while ago is that we're made our bodies, the, the animal mammal part of us is if, if I feel anxiety, terror, shame, humiliation, if I feel those things going on and then I do something that makes me feel better on a non-thinking level, on a limbic level, limbic brain level, I say, yes, 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 yes for that. And then my brainstem starts searching for those things. Mm-hmm. This is happening at the non-cognitive level, right? So it's, it's not a choice. It's just a, it's an impulse that becomes a compulsion. And so what, what's normal is we're made to feel secure. Right. We're made to go from anxiety and shame and stress and and loneliness to security, belonging, mattering, safety. We want that feeling. Right. Um, It's just there's lots of things out there that can hurt us in that process. Oh, even, you know, codependency is a huge addiction. Right. Mm. The, The sense of it's my job to make everybody else okay, so that I'll be okay, Mm. You know, and I'm going to cram my helpfulness down your throat so that I feel good about me. You know, that's can be addictive because people don't even know they're doing it. And when you call them on it, they get their feelings hurt. They get mad at you mm. for, for trying to take away their drug of choice. Right. Mm. And neurologically that's an addictive process, you know? And so our argument with the book is that uh, like we're made a certain way. Right. And, it's not, are you addicted or not addicted? It's like, what are you addicted to? And how is that thing may, taking on the center of your world uh, and, and, and owning you? Because the word addiction comes from a Latin phrase that means to give oneself over to, like to become a slave of. It owns mm-hmm. me now, right? That's where we got the word. And so, so it's like the question is like, what are you giving yourself over to that owns you so that you aren't free, you know? Mm-hmm. And that you aren't really experiencing the generousness of love, you know, and um, we always do one of the, you know, when a book comes out, your publicist gets you on lots of things and you have lots of conversations. More than one conversation recently, someone has said to me, 
because it's a it's a book to a Christian publisher, so they they've got us on a lot of Christian things. Um, hey, the, the Christians can't be addicted, can they? Like, doesn't someone just need Jesus? And it's like, oh my God, what a foolish! I've been so nice not to just go off like a maniac, uh, and burn a bridge. But it's it's like, oh, some of the best people I know are addicts, right? So the question becomes, are you? What are you in recovery of? You know. Um, and what are you, you know, are you recovering to life? Not just recovery from something, but are you recovering to the life you're made to live? Like full heartedly engaging in a world that is um, broken and difficult and beautiful and lovely all at the same time. You know, mm. and and that's a hard that's a hard story to live in, right? That's a daily that's daily living that that requires that. Mm. Um, another one of your chapters is titled uh, "The Paradigm of Sickness and Recovery," and yeah. I'm just I'm just curious to know, um, a uh, what's the what's the process of someone admitting their their they have an addiction because so many of these addictions and whatever they may be, there's the obvious that that all of us know, alcohol, drugs, um, et cetera. But but what are some what are what does that process look like for someone who who may have an alcohol drug addiction but but other types of addictions who, that are more socially acceptable what's that work. Pro- uh, yeah the exactly work, work. Yeah. yeah work um, I would even argue that people can be addicted to religion uh, oh a thousand percent uh, yeah a million percent yeah 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 and what what is that process of of coming to the point where you're like you know what I, I think. I need to seek help and recovery on this. What does that process look like? We talk about that paradigm and that was created by my co-author Chip Dodd, his good friend and mentor. And I'll walk you the paradigm and that'll take us to solution. So the paradigm goes this way. We start with a self. Everybody comes into life feeling, needing, desiring, longing, hoping creature. Right. And we, we, we just can't help, but like live an open hearted, like babies are like, hundred percent on like, love me. They don't start with the sense that they're not worth anything. They'd start with like, love me. We're, I love you. You love me. Feed me, change my diaper. Let's play and laugh. Right. Uh, and then something happens called pain, you know, and humans, because we're so relational, the most devastating pain we can experience is some kind of rejection. Right. Uh, and we experience these really early, then we experience them more and more and more. But somewhere along the way, we decide that I'm not okay unless you think well of me. Hmm. Right. And that is the introduction of shame, you know, and it, and it's, shame is a, especially toxic shame, um, is this idea that that comes online about 18 months old. Right. And, the, the child starts reading the mother's face or the father's face, but typically more the mother's face. And uh, the mother will show signs of disgust of the child, which the child encodes as rejection. And every parent does this. Every family does this. Not every, like not every grows up to be an addict. Right. But our relationship with shame as human beings is so fundamental. Right. And so important. Right. Shame's a hugely wonderful thing psychologically, the definition of not having shame is to be a psychopath. So we got to have a healthy measure of shame, but it's so powerful. We all start believing that I have to perform for love. I have to do the right thing the right way at the right time. 
in order to make myself acceptable to you. And that's called toxic shame. And that leads to like codependency. And that cycle is exhausting, right? So in order to not feel rejected for being me, I've got to be something other than me to be accepted and loved for who you want me to be or who the world says I'm supposed to be, right? So that's so exhausting. I need a break. I got to have something to take the edge off, right? I need, you know, I need a cup of coffee. No, a cup of coffee is not going to do that, right? It's not going to do that. I need a drink. I need a smoke. I need to look at some pictures of naked women. I need someone to touch me in certain places. I need to go run away from it all, right? I need uh, to sleep through it. I need I need some Xanax. I mean, I need something that's going to take this edge off, right? And so we start looking for behaviors and substances that processes that change our neurochemistry that give us a sense of power, control, and security, right? So that's that's how everybody becomes an addict. The way back to that is to actually reclaim that I have a self. I am a self. I need to learn to tolerate my feelings and needs and desires and longings and hopes. They're not going to kill me, though they're uncomfortable, right? And so the beginning of recovery is admitting, obviously, admitting I got a problem. That's been around since Family Ties in like the 1980s, that TV show, right, where Tom Hanks was the uncle that was an alcoholic. That's how a lot of us kind of understood addiction. But I've got a problem. But my problem is is this substance, but my real problem is my unwillingness to be human. And I need to learn mm, to embrace good. my humanity and not just the easy parts of it, but the 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 painful parts of being human and which are feelings, needs and desires and longings and hope, you know. Yeah. That's and good. As, as I, yeah. That that so, can I just interrupt you there for a minute? Oh, please uh, do. Yeah. Would, would that unwillingness to be human, is that is that at the root of so many of our addictions is what what yes. you're saying is we're unwilling to enter in, sit with process and grow from that. And so the unwillingness to be human is where those addictions start. Is that kind of yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. Especially the unwillingness to feel feelings mm. and have needs. We don't like our feelings and we don't like our needs. Like mm. that's, um, because most, because life is tragic. Most of our feelings during the day are made up with loneliness and hurt and anger and sadness and shame and guilt and fear. And then there's some gladness thrown in here and there. Right. But, but life is difficult. Uh, M Scott Peck wrote a book years ago, uh, called, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Big famous book. Oh, the road uh, less remember? traveled. World less travel. Thank mm-hmm. you. And he, the opening line of that book is life is difficult. And once you begin to accept that life is difficult, it becomes less difficult. Like mm. that's the whole book is that sentence, right? But everything we do to try to make our lives easier and more com- really more comfortable and convenient could be things that'll kill us mm. ultimately. Right. And so my attempt to maintain the status quo in an ever changing world, that's my definition of insanity, not doing the same thing expecting different results. That's called hope to me. Like that's hopeful, but, but trying to maintain the status quo in a world that's always becoming and evolving and changing, that's insanity. Mm. And I can't. So, you know, life happens as they say. Yeah. Yeah, I know for me, um, growing up, I, I think part of the root of, of many of my, my struggles and refusing to be embrace humanity, as you said, in its fullest, 
stemmed from a lot of shame um, and also a lot of religious addiction that said, um, rather than entering into that humanity, uh, is denying it or looking for or outsourcing morality to something outside of myself because I could not trust myself. And I was inherently broken and, and, and quote, evil. Um, so therefore, I would outsource. And, and to me, for me, I can only speak for me, that is a denying and a rejection of humanity in its worst form, because uh, you're not accepting the goodness um, of who you are and the ability of your true self to truly walk and enter into that humanity and to be all that you were meant to be, but it's a total denial and a cutting off of it. And so therefore, if you have that structure, you can then say, I'm going to outsource everything that is good to me to something outside of myself because I am inherently bad. And to me, that's an enormous amount of shame to deal with that at some point in your life, it's either going to come crashing down and it's going to break because you realize, oh, none of this is, is really true. Or you double down on it and become a very, very mean, ugly, judgmental person. Mm. Um, that's my experience and my observation. I can't speak for anyone else. but uh, well, I, think you've, I think you've spoken for a lot of people without trying to. I think that's a lot of people's experiences is, you know, pursuing I mean, shame is so powerful because it is the emotion that coordinates human relationship, mm. right? Like I watch your face, you watch my face. We, we try to coordinate. And, and if we're empathetic at all, that I don't want you to feel too badly. I don't want you, I don't want you to make me feel too badly. Like, and that's, that's sensitivity to shame. Right. But it's so powerful systems pick it up. Right. And start using it to motivate people, to attract people, to promise people that there's a way for you to overcome being human, mm. you know? And to me, you know, the, the, the beauty of the Christian story, the Jesus story is that like it's so ironical because like other unlike other other faith systems it's centered around like god saying the human thing's so cool i'm going to do that thing for a while like i'm going to go do the human thing you know and i'm going to be so average just so average you know and i'm going to do the whole human experience uh as a way to say like i know what it's like to be you like that's such an empathetic beautiful invitational thing that doesn't that doesn't build buildings or put cars in parking lots <laughs> like yeah. that story, you right. know? And so I think um, just like our, our, you know, our current president, Donald Trump pointed at a problem to people. This was, and he said in the last election, it was like, Oh, the Mexicans are coming. We better build a wall. They're coming to get us. They're coming to get us, which is an old ploy. Uh, you know, Nixon did it. Clinton did it. Bush did it. Like every modern president has pointed to some small group of people that aren't going to vote for them anyway and have made them the problem. You have, to have, did it with, you have to have an enemy yeah, on the outside. An, yeah. And Hitler did it with the Jews. You know, um, I think I think religion has done it with humanity. Mm. They've said the problem is humanity. And um, we're we're not a problem. We're we're deficient. Like every one of us is deficient. But being deficient doesn't mean we're defective. Right. right. That that we're made right, but we're just not we don't have all the answers. 
and it takes us together to kind of come up with even half-baked solutions, right? So, so that idea that we need to belong and matter is the answer. But when you interject shame and performance into it, man, that's how you build a cult really quickly. Like you can build right. a cult really quick. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I have, I'm going to speak right to the center of, of what you do and what you feel is, is your calling in life is yeah. I have so many friends that um, are, are, are starting to enter into that need for this type of community and counseling and therapy. And, and again, at, at a point in, in our lives as men, we get to, you know, we've done it all. We've been successful. We've had failures. And then all of a sudden we're like, I really need some serious help, but, you know, going to therapy counseling is, you know, well, that's what women do or that's what weak people do. And so I guess it is what weak people do. Exactly. Exactly. You got to be weak. How how do personal therapy and recovery rehab work and come together in successful treatment? What, what does that look like for, for someone who's listening to this podcast and, um, you know, they might be struggling with addictions. They might just oh, be yeah. like, my marriage really sucks right now. And if I don't do something about it, I don't think it's going to last. Um, can you talk to that person and help them to understand that, you know, it, it's going it, to, this could be one of the best things they could ever do. Yeah. I'm going to go around it backwards and come, sure. and come to it. it is when we wrote this book, it was really important to us that it wasn't like a paint by numbers kind of yeah. book. Right. And so we got, you know, nine and 10 of our friends who are, to write their personal stories mm. because we wanted most of the book to be stories of hope that it's actually possible to live well, you know, um, that it's not a rumor that it's actually there are people actually doing it out there. So that's really important to say that to say um, if somebody is struggling with addiction or depression or anxiety or they're unhappy or they think their marriage sucks, you know, I want you to know that like you, it's actually possible for some people to be married and have great marriages. It's actually singleness is actually really cool too, right? Like, the, you know, um, that there's not a silver bullet that's going to fix you for life, but you don't have to live in the bondage of this thing that's enslaved you called like, happiness or the attempt for happiness or uh, stoicism, which is the new philosophy du jour. If I could just not experience life and be above it, then I'll feel better um, that there's help and that, that counseling is wonderful. Going to treatment is great. Going to AA meetings or ACA meetings, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional family, which everybody, everybody is can join that one. Right. Like, uh, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, uh, NA, Narcotics Anonymous. I mean, there's communities. Richard Rohr said in, in his book, Falling Underwater, that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous may be Western Western culture's only gift to global spirituality. I right? agree. The only, yeah. Right? And that, that pathway of, I've got a problem. I've tried my best to get over it, and I can't. I do believe there's a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. Right, whether that's just the community of people, right, that are doing it, or there's there's a, a you know God we talk about in AA is good orderly direction, just following God. You know, so, somebody else knows better for me sometimes, right? Yeah. That 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 path of I'm not the center of the universe, 
and then looking at, I've done some really shitty things to try to make my life work. And I resent a lot of people for it. Hmm. And taking an inventory of those things and then telling that to somebody who goes, really, that's all you've done. Okay. Tell me more, you know, and then recognizing that you have some, you have some defects, some character defects that you've created that you need to ask God to remove. Like, and then you're ready to like go serve the world. Like that process, that path, I think is a very beautiful spiritual path, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'm a big, I love counseling. I think it's great. I'm a licensed therapist. I own counseling centers. And that's not the answer to life. Like we're the most therapized group of people ever in the history of the world. And we're the most neurotic people (laughs) ever. Uh, So sometimes just like going out and serving the poor can do a lot of good, you know? Yeah. Um, but you need to get back and I mean, what if you don't know your story and the feelings that go with your story, you're on a hamster wheel of destruction. So wow. like what's your story and what do you feel about it? Because that's controlling your life all day long unless you start to tell the truth about it. And mm. so that's that's what therapy therapy is just a, it's a technology. And there and um, I like to say that like a therapist that's caring and they think that's the solution. They don't, that's not the solution. There's actually a way of being with somebody that begins to rewrite their neurochemistry and rewrite their story, help them rewrite their story. But there's great things like neurofeedback that are phenomenal. I'm a huge fan of neurofeedback. Uh, um, but we do need to recognize that, that, you know, anti-anxiety medicine and depression medicine don't cure the problem. They just ameliorate the problem. And that could be really, really good. Um, but there, there is a way to actually grow and heal and change, you know, and, and I would encourage people just go look for it, like follow it, like follow, there's somebody, you know, that's doing it. Just ask them how they did it. And they'll tell you, you might not like their answer. Um, you know, but because it might mean you have to give up the very thing that's making your life work. Uh, so I was with a guy, I take men out into the wilderness four or five times a year. We were, we had a group out uh, riding motorcycles and, and side-by-sides out in the Utah desert a couple weeks ago. And we go out there and we take everyone's phone away and no one gets to make decisions. And, and we have a chef that comes with us that makes great food. But there's a, there's a guy about the second night, the third night of our four days, he said, man, I came out here convinced that if I just divorced my wife, my wife, my life would be better. Because what you guys have shown me this weekend is none of you like being with me. (laughs) There's a common element there. There's a common element. It's like, yeah, you're a hard guy to be with. Your problem may not be your wife. Mm. You know? Now, I don't know. I don't know about his marriage, but I do know this guy's got problems. His wife wasn't with him this weekend, that weekend that we were on a trip. You know? Uh, And so, you know, just changing your, your environment, your geography doesn't change you. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, Steven, thank you for your time. Oh, if, absolutely, man. Yeah. The last thing I, I, I'd like to do is if someone wants to learn more about the books, your writings, your Sage Hill, what you do there in Nashville, how do people get in uh, touch with you? Um, I mean, they can go to sagehillcounseling.com. They can go to leadershiplab.co. Uh, and the books are always on Amazon. There's an audio book and all that stuff too. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. 
I, I said two years ago, I'd never write another book. And then the last two years I've written two books. So, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm going to write more books, but I think, you know, call Say Chill, reach out to Say Chill, or if you're not in Nashville, like reach out to Say Chill, or just reach out to anybody. There are really good people out there that that are helping people. Like Mr. Rogers said, whenever there's a hard time, look where the helpers are, right? Look for the helpers. And yeah. so every community in the world I have found helping people, you know? Uh, and if the person you reach out, sadly, sometimes the people that say they're helping aren't, um, you know? And so we might need to look in, in unlikely places to find the people that are most helpful. Mm. Uh, but sometimes that's part of the fun of it too. But you, yeah. So yeah, hlcounseling.com or leadershiplab.co, the, the you can find me in those places. And Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time and thank you for, for writing the book with Chip. And, um, you know, I hope to, I hope to have him on soon. Uh, yeah, he would love to do it. I'll connect y'all. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, hopefully this book will will do really well and touch a lot of people and um, continue to keep doing what you're doing there, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, we'll talk to you soon. 